Well, good morning. That wasn't very strong. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, uh, this morning, I want to start off by talking about stories, talking about stories. Uh, More specifically, uh, our stories uh, about how we met Jesus. I want to talk about that because our stories, as different as they are, they, they matter. They matter a lot. And as I, I say that, whether you're here in this room or watching online, when I say that our stories, how we fell in love with Jesus, how we came to Jesus, our stories matter a lot, I know that there are some of us who sit here and we think, it doesn't, Josh. Like, if you knew, I don't have a story like some people's story. My, my story doesn't matter. But I want you to know that your story, whatever it is, it matters. It actually matters quite a bit. The stories have always been an interesting thing as it pertains to Christians, uh, because we actually have a, a name for our story in faith circles. Uh, we call it a testimony, right? Uh, a testimony. It's our story of coming to Jesus. And I had no idea that this was even a thing when I first started going to church and even a couple of months later when I found myself at a Christian university. I remember some guy came up to me and he's like, hey, so... What's your testimony? I'm like, what, what do you want from me? Like, what? I have no idea that this was even a thing, but come to find out what this guy was actually asking was, how does somebody like you end up following somebody like Jesus? What's your story? In fact, testimonies uh, in my Christian university was such a powerful thing that uh, when I first got there, first semester, they say, hey, here's what we're going to do. There's 30 guys on the hall. Every Tuesday night, we're going to have a new one of you share your testimony, share your story about Jesus. And I was like, well, this sounds great. I can learn from several people. I've only been going to church a few months. Guess who got to go first? Um, it, was, <laughs> it was the definition of short, awkward, and sweet. Uh, well, I moved through that pretty fast, but as the other guys in the hall started sharing how, how they came to know Jesus, it actually became quite a powerful gathering. Now, in my 15 some odd years of doing ministry in a church, I can't even begin to count uh, the events that involved, first and foremost, uh, comfort food, and then secondly, somebody sharing their testimony, right? We hit the meatloaf, and they want to know how Nancy came to know Jesus, right? And that's exciting. That, that matters. It makes a difference because our stories matter. They, they make a difference. And people can find incredible encouragement through understanding our lives before following Jesus, how we came to know him, and the difference he's making in our lives today. It's a powerful thing. There's always been uh, what I like to call a subtle tension uh, just below the surface in most, if not all, of these settings where people gather and hear somebody else sharing their testimony, sharing their story. And this subtle tension plays itself out in a few different ways. Um, For those of us who were really, really messed up before following Jesus, and now we're proudly only slightly messed up after, um, we can become almost prideful as we discuss how bad we were before following Jesus. The focus can become too much on, on, well, look at how bad I was, and then Jesus pulled me through that. And and I openly admit to you guys, as as I look back on uh, my time of knowing Christ, uh, I've been, been way too guilty of having my identity found in who I used to be and what Jesus called me out of more than who Jesus is calling me to be. I, I, I failed at that for a number of years. And, and I know many other people with kind of a, a bad history who would say they've struggled with that as well. And then on the other end of the spectrum, I've had conversations with, with several people, probably too many to name, who, who they hear like a testimony that's, oh, someone came from something really bad and they met Jesus. And, and people say, well, ugh, in light of that, I guess my story just doesn't matter. 
And they feel that they weren't as off course in their life before following Jesus. And so uh, they just kind of sit a little bit and think, well, I don't have one of those good stories. So I guess I don't have much to offer the kingdom of God. Uh, When my wife and I, uh, Julie, when we met in college, uh, we both felt that tension on the opposite extremes. I thought how bad I was um, before meeting Jesus gave me some kind of unique value uh, in the kingdom of God. And, and my wife, on the other hand, my girlfriend at the time, like she would look at what I came through and she'd say, man, I wish I had a really cool story like yours. So that way, like Jesus could use me to do great things. She wanted that really cool story. She realized that really cool story is a struggle. And I, I thought it gave me some kind of unique, sick value in the kingdom that I did struggle before meeting Jesus. So no matter where we are on the spectrum today, I want us to see that if we have been called by Jesus Christ, if, if the Savior of the world has come into our lives, then our stories matter. Wherever you're out on the spectrum, whatever it is, whether you come from what we call the bad or, or even the not so bad or somewhere in between, all that matters is that we follow Jesus. And so our stories matter. They matter a lot. And today I want to talk about why. So if you want to follow along on your devices, uh, or on your Bible, we'll be spending a lot of time this morning in Mark chapter 5, um, so feel free to go there. And the scripture we'll read today, I want to let you know up front that we're going to read this, and it's going to seem more like a scene from The Exorcist um, than from the Bible, okay? So that, that's where we're going, but, but this story, this exorcism actually has a lot more to do with our lives than what we even imagine at first. So Mark chapter 5 begins immediately after Jesus calmed a storm. This was no small storm. This storm was threatening the lives of Jesus and his disciples. And Jesus didn't seem to mind. Uh, He was asleep. And so the disciples, as the, the waves are crashing onto the boat, they wake Jesus up, fearing for their lives. And I think much to their surprise, when they wake Jesus up, Jesus actually rebukes them for having such little faith. And now I completely understand their concern for a storm. If, if I spend three hours out in the water, I got sea legs for six hours on land. Like I would not be the guy you'd want on a boat in a storm. But, but for these disciples, what's awaiting them on the shore proves to be much more terrifying. So let's go ahead and dive into our text, which is titled, Jesus Heals a Demon-Possessed Man. Jesus Heals a Demon-Possessed Man. So verse 1. So they, Jesus and his disciples, they arrived at the other side of the lake in the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out from the tombs to meet him. Now that's quite the welcome wagon uh, upon shore. But I I love looking for little subtleties in the text. And if you notice in verse 2, when the demon-possessed man approaches, only Jesus got out of the boat, right? I would have been just like the disciples. I'd have been like, nope. I'm good here. Uh, let's just go back. And, can we go back to the storm, Jesus? I liked the storm. Like, I don't want to get out of the boat. But, but here's a little bit more about this demon-possessed man. This man lived in the burial caves and could no longer be restrained, even with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrist and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night, he wandered among the burial caves and in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. Now, it's quite normal in the first century to ostracize someone who dealt with mental illness or to ostracize somebody um, who dealt with significant physical illnesses. It's often why when we read about Jesus, we see the lepers are always on the outskirts of town. So people would just, just shun people that, that struggled, whether physically or mentally, to the outside of town. And, 
Now, we don't know if anyone knew necessarily that this individual uh, struggled with a demon or not. We have no idea what their perspective was. But what we do know is at some point, they kind of just wrote him off as crazy. They shackled him to the outskirts of town so he wouldn't be a harm to their lives. Then verse 6, when Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him, ran to meet him, and bowed low before him. With a shriek, he screamed, why are you interfering with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already said to the spirit, come out of the man, you evil spirit. Now, whether it's darkness in our world, and I, I know we see a lot of darkness in, in our world, or whether it's the darkness that we are dealing with in our, in our hearts and in our minds, it's, it's important we realize from this text that darkness absolutely hates when Jesus wants to interfere with it. So the things you're trying to get through, like the sins you're trying to conquer, the stuff that you are struggling with, like the darkness that weighs so heavily in your lives, there's a reason it's a fight to get out of it because darkness absolutely hates when Jesus Christ wants to interfere with it. And so keep that in mind as you go about your days, as you try to become more like Christ. It's gonna be a fight because the darkness always fights back, but Jesus is stronger. Then back to our story. Then Jesus demanded, what is your name? And he replied, and, and I practiced this yesterday in the mirror, and I kept trying to figure out like a demon voice, but it was just like a really bad Liam Neeson, so we're not going to try it. Um, he replied, my name is Legion, because there are many of us inside this man. This is the stuff that Netflix horror section is made of. This right here is terrifying to me. So a legion, just so we know, was the largest unit, unit of any Roman army, and it consisted from anywhere between 3,000 soldiers and 6,000 soldiers. And so the, the, the demons inside this man are saying, you're not just messing with, like, you're not just messing with Ted here, right? There's like 3,000 to 6,000, don't push us Jesus, right? But then the evil spirits begged him again and again not to send them some distant place. There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. Send us into those pigs, the spirits begged. Let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission. The evil spirits came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the entire herd of about 2,000 pigs plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. Verse 14 tells us the herdsmen, and can you imagine being those guys? Right? They, they, they try to tie this guy up out in the, in the middle of nowhere, and they get on the scene, the bacon's in the water. It's not a good deal. So these herdsmen, they fled to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. People rushed out to see what had happened. Verse 15, a crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there fully clothed, which... Mark left that out earlier, um, but now he's fully clothed and perfectly sane. And all the people were afraid. Then those who had seen what happened told the others about the demon-possessed man and the pigs. And the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. The crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. Now, the response to this entire scene has all has gone down so far makes perfect sense to me, right? Uh, there's a possessed man. Jesus comes on the scene and he heals the possessed man. The demons go into the pigs. The pigs go into the drink. The people come onto the scene and the people want Jesus to leave because the people care more about pigs than they do the person. And so everything so far, you can kind of see where it makes sense. But what happens next is really interesting to me. What happens next, I think for most of us on the surface, we'd say, well, this makes very little sense. 
But what happens next is going to launch us into what this man's surprising story has to do with our own stories. Verse 18, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus said, no. Go home to your family and tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he's been. The man wanted to go with Jesus, but Jesus said, no. You want to talk about stories. You want to talk about powerful testimonies. Like this man has one, right? Like, can you imagine like showing up to, to, to church and you eat your comfort food and you sit down and they were all going to go around and share a story. We're going to share our testimonies. And you got to follow the once demon possessed man who wandered the graveyards in broken shackles and no pants. Like, this is not the guy I'm following. If I'm given my testimony, that's a hard pass on my part. You know, so when you think about this man and everything he's, he's gone through, what he's overcome, right? Such an unbelievable, miraculous conversion. You wonder why Jesus would tell him, no, just stay home. I think this man's motives are, are pure. We have no reason to think he has ulterior motives here. He wants to go with Jesus. He wants to go with the disciples because after all, he is the walking, talking evidence of the power of Christ and how Jesus can change lives. Why wouldn't he be able to go? Now, I admit that if I were Jesus, I'd be like P.T. Barnum from the circus, right? I would have said, you want to come? Guys, scoot over, get in the boat, let's get rowing. People will really believe me once they see the demon-possessed man. Like, that's my motive. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus looks at this man with this amazing story, this amazing testimony, and Jesus says, mm, no. He tells the man to stay home, and I'm sure this healed man would have been more than a little disappointed. Right? The man wanted to go to the ends of the world with Jesus, share his incredible story, but Jesus has other plans. Jesus says, you know what? What's best for the kingdom if you stay right where you are? And I know I've struggled with this at times. I don't think I'm alone. I think we've all struggled with this at times. Sometimes we want Jesus to, to call us on these exciting adventures. Jesus, I'll sign up for that incredible mission. And, and sometimes he does. He really does. But more often than not, he, he doesn't. He just tells us, no, why don't you stay and be effective in the mundane, in the day-to-day, -day, in the ordinary? More often than what we're comfortable admitting, Jesus sometimes tells us to, you know what, just stay put right where you are. Make a difference in the kingdom of God by loving the people around you. As we conclude this story in verse 20, we read, So the man started off to visit the ten towns of that region and began to proclaim the great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed at what he told him. You know, we often want these amazing stories, right? We want to, you know, be, maybe, maybe we want to be demon-possessed, but like we want the cred, like the street cred, we want the credentials. We want people to say, ooh, look at that story. It's amazing, but you know what? Here's what makes an amazing story. Look at it. It's right there in verse 20. It's hidden in plain sight. What made this man's story amazing was the great things Jesus had done for him, period. It wasn't how bad the man had been on his way to Jesus. That's not what made his story amazing. No, what made this man's story amazing was the good things Jesus had done for him. And this should be the main focus of each and every one of our stories because ultimately, we aren't going to wow people. We aren't going to amaze people. Jesus at work in our lives is what's going to wow people. That's what's going to amaze people. Every one of our stories, no matter what they are, they matter a lot. And here's why. Because of Jesus and only because of Jesus. You don't have to, to be prideful or concerned if you're like, hey, I was, I was real bad like a demon-possessed demon man. 
And you don't certainly have to feel down about your story if you're like, man, Josh, my story was mild at best. It wasn't wild at all. If you have a tame story, that's okay. Well, speaking of tame stories, right, we like to downplay them. We like to, like my wife in college said, ah, boy, God could really use me. Jesus could really use me if I had this just incredibly bad story like the demon-possessed man or like, basically like you, future husband, right? But speaking of very tame stories, uh, think about the stories of Jesus' early disciples. Think about their testimonies. People like Andrew, Peter, James, and John. That's a third of Jesus' original 12 disciples that he handpicked and asked these people to carry on his mission once he left this world. Think about their testimonies. Like, imagine if someone came up to Peter and Andrew and said, listen, we're going to have a lot of good comfort food at church, and then, boy, it would be a powerful event if we could get two of you, right? If we could get you, Peter and Andrew, to give your testimony to how you started following Jesus, it's going to be powerful. Y'all would eat your comfort food. They would get up, and here's what they would say. So this is my testimony. Um, my brother and I, we were uh, out fishing. And this guy we'd never seen before uh, asked us to follow him. So we did. Oh, how rousing of, of a testimony is that? Oh, how, how wonderful. Now, imagine if the other set of brothers, right? Imagine if somebody came up to James and John. It's like, you follow Jesus early on. You are one of the 12. Jesus called, he said you would do even greater things than him. He left the world and left you in charge of the church to, to change the world. Can you share your testimony with us? Oh, I bet it'd be powerful, right? You'd eat the meatloaf and they'd get up and here's what they'd say. So there we were out on the sea. Uh, we are fishermen, but our nets were tangled. So actually we weren't fishing. We were fixing our nets and uh, we looked up and lo and behold, um, here comes some guy with perfectly wind-blown brown hair. Uh, and he comes up to us, followed by two other fishermen. And he says, hey, would you follow me? And that sounded better than fixing nets with our dad. So we left dad in the boat and we followed him. Oh, what a, what a heartfelt inspiration that testimony is, right? You see, our story isn't so much about us. Our story, what makes it great, is about who has called us. What makes our story great isn't so much about what we were doing before following Jesus, whether good or bad or somewhere in between. It's all about the fact that we were called by Jesus. You know, so many people constantly feel like, well, I don't have a cool story. I don't have a good story. So, so I don't know if, if I could ever be used by God. I, I just wish I had an amazing story. Well, if you've ever felt that way, hear me out. If Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, came into this world to die for your imperfection so that way he could have a relationship with you, that in and of itself makes your life a great story. If every day you get up and Jesus is leading you, he is speaking to you, you're reading scripture and he's growing you and he's shaping you into better moms and dads, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, friends, coworkers, whatever it is. If that's the way it is, you have an amazing, extraordinary story. If you communicate with Jesus through prayer and you think he hears you and he does and, and you know he is, he is leading you, he is with you, he is for you and he's at work in your life because he is. If that's your story, that's an amazing story because your story is his story. And, and regardless of who we were before, all that matters is who we are following now. And if you are following Jesus, your story cannot be anything other than remarkable, period. If you've never given your life to Jesus, right? If, if you've been here with us today or, or you're online and, and you, you've just never given your life to Christ and maybe you think like, oh, I'm so bad. Could Jesus ever use me? Well, 
he used a demon-possessed man to go and preach in the ten towns. I don't care how bad you've been. You cannot out God's grace. You're, all you could do is just follow him. Right? Or even just feel like, I just got this tame story. Could, could Jesus ever use it? The answer is, yes, he can. Because whether good or bad, all that matters is that we give our life to Jesus. And that makes our story more than we could ever make it on our own. So if you've never given your life to Christ and you're watching online, like, Throw it in the chat. We, this is something to celebrate. We had somebody give their life to Christ online at 9 a.m., which is amazing, right? And if you're here with us physically, I'll be in the connect room with our worship pastor after this gathering. I would love to talk with you about what it looks like to have a relationship with Jesus because I tried to live a great story on my own and I couldn't do it. And once I kind of died to my like self-interest and started following Jesus, he, he has made my story more remarkable than I could ever imagine. Now, as we start to close out this series, I want to talk about one of my top five moments in all the Bible. Um, this moment is about a young man named Mephibosheth. Um, there, there's actually a, a, a growing number of people who are choosing to name their kids after Bible characters. <laughs> you don't see any little Mephibosheths uh, running around. So if you're looking for a name, there you go. Um, but to understand Mephibosheth, we need to understand a little bit about his father and then also his grandfather as well. Mephibosheth, his, his grandfather was King Saul. And his grandfather, King Saul, had it out. He could not stand uh, this young man that Nick talked about earlier named David. And David would eventually take the throne from Saul. In fact, out of jealousy, uh, we know that King Saul tried to kill young David uh, a couple of times. Yet despite Saul's hate for David, David became great friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. And and to this day, in, in Christian circles, when we talk about what is a great friendship, how do we have great friends, a lot of people look at David and look at Jonathan and say, Well, that's how you define a great self-sacrificing friendship. Now, Jonathan would go on to have a son, and he named that son Mephibosheth. However, when Mephibosheth was about five years old, both his dad, Jonathan, and his grandpa, Saul, died in battle. That wasn't uncommon when um, kind of the the heirs of the family, whenever they would die, that the enemy would also seek out to, to kill their entire family line, kill their children. And so upon hearing the, the death of, of Saul and, and Jonathan, um, Mephibosheth's caretaker heard this news and went to flee with the young boy and uh, by some freak accident actually dropped the child and, and paralyzed Mephibosheth. Um, it's a very raw, tragic story. You can read about it in 2 Samuel 4 if you want to be depressed. Um, but remember that the ugly truth is that those who were handicapped or were flawed uh, in this day and age, biblically, they were considered beyond hope. They're considered an embarrassment to society. It doesn't matter that it was an accident. It doesn't matter that it, was, it wasn't Mephibosheth's fault. It was a complete accident. But the reality is, now biblically speaking, because he is paralyzed, Mephibosheth is a lost cause. He is a hopeless story. A couple chapters over in 2 Samuel 9, we read that David would eventually become king. And despite the differences he had, big differences, uh, with King Saul, David wanted to honor somebody in Saul's family for the sake of of his friendship with the deceased Jonathan. So we read in 2 Samuel 9, chapter 2, David summoned a man named Ziba who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba? The king asked. Yes, sir, I am Ziba. I am Ziba, replied. The king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. And Ziba replied, yes, One of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He is crippled in both feet. There's two things about that. Yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. 
Um, this servant won't even mention Mephibosheth's name because of how low on the rung of society he was. And here's why. The second statement, he is crippled in both feet. So what this servant is basically saying, there is, but his story's written, he's handicapped, it's over, you can forget about him. He's a lost cause, his story's been written. But yet David sends for Mephibosheth. And upon uh, coming to the throne of King David, Mephibosheth felt so low about himself that he actually fell before the throne of King David and called himself a dog. And then in one of the most, I think, one of the most beautiful moments in all of Scripture, one of the, not the, but one of them, we read, Then King David summoned Saul's servant Ziba and said, I have given your master's grandson, Mephibosheth, everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons are servants, you and your sons and the servants are to farm the land for him, to produce food for your master's household. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will eat here at my table. Zebra replied, Yes, my lord the king, I am your servant and I will do all that you have commanded. And I love this, I love this, I love this. And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table like one of the king's own sons. It's just beautiful. You see, church family, many things have gone into our stories that we've had no control over. And there have been a lot of things that have gone into our stories that we do have control over. But our story before Jesus doesn't matter. All that matters is that Jesus, our king, has invited us to the table. No matter what we've done, no matter where we've been, Jesus chooses to treat us as one of his own. And that is what makes our story so great. Our King, Jesus Christ, we have a seat at his table. And that is why your story matters.